Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. I'll stand aside. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 25. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, that's us guys, nice to see you all. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold firm without swerving or drifting to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we read your word and now as we engage with it, for the next 25, 30 minutes, I pray, Father, would you do something deep in our hearts? Would you shift something, things that have seemed immovable? Would you, would you pull us back into line where we've maybe strayed away? I thank you, Father God. Your word brings correction, encouragement, and life to every heart that opens towards it. So today, I, as a preacher, God, open my heart and say, Word of God, do your work in me. Would you do that in all of us here today? And would we never be the same? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Why don't you take a seat? This morning, very quickly, we have been reading from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 is where we've been based, but this morning I felt led to preach from this passage, and if you are unaware of the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is written to, we are unaware of the author. Some people say it was Barnabas because it sounds very encouraging, some people say it was Paul. The Bible doesn't actually tell us who wrote this book, but we do know it was expertly written to a group of people. We do know who it was written to. It was written to a bunch of Jewish Christians, Jewish people who had become believers in Jesus, and they were living in Rome, in Rome under Nero. And uh, it was before Christianity had become completely outlawed. Christianity wasn't legal. It was a bit of a frustrating thing on the side. So the Romans persecuted those who were Christian. But not, not to the point of death. No, we weren't there yet. We weren't at the point where one Peter, two Peter's written where Christians are being killed. But these Christians are now, the persecutions are a tough thing. Anything but death, basically. They are taking their people's homes away from them. They are vandalizing their possessions. They're throwing, we find in Hebrews 10, you keep reading, they threw them in prison for their faith as well. Everything to the point of death. And these Jewish Christians who have stumbled upon the faith of Jesus, they're now in Rome, away from their families. It's feeling tough. It's not, everything's not going as according to plan. And, and they, they are starting to have questions about this thing of Christ going, basically saying, is it worth it? Is holding on to Jesus and giving our trust to him worth all this? I mean, come on. It's frustrating. It's like, it's, it's impeding on our lifestyle. It's, it's struggling. I'm struggling to do my business because guys, when they find out I'm a, one of those guys, they bypass us. Is it worth holding on to Jesus? And actually, there was a large sway of people, historically we find, of Jewish Christians who were starting to drift back into Jewish Judaism because the synagogues were legal in Rome. It was a religion, a well-known religion, and, and in Rome they were open to these things, not these new ways of living called Christianity. But So a lot of Jewish believers were actually going trading Jesus and drifting their way back into the synagogues. And the writer of Hebrews writing to him, and, and the whole book is he using all these incredible, he's using on every single analogy, every thought, every biblical pattern in, in, in the book of Hebrews, using every Israel literature, and he's trying to show them that Jesus is worth it. 
He's trying to put hope and courage in their hearts. And we get to this passage, chapter 10, which has put such fuel in my heart this week, if I'm honest. It's put such fuel in because what is this doing? It's coming there and in essence, he's saying, don't drift. He's putting courage in your hearts and, and he's saying, resist the drift. Do everything to resist the drift of your heart that wants to drift to passivity, that wants to drift to ease, that wants to drift to comfort. There is so much worth it if you hold, take hold of your heart and fix it on Jesus. That's a, a, the, in a nutshell what the writer is trying to do in this moment. And I want to say this, uh, this morning, that maybe you're sitting here today and uh, your life, your marriage, your purpose, your heart seems to just be drifting. Maybe, maybe not full on, I'm gone away from God. Maybe you are there. But, but I want to suggest actually this morning that, that no one wakes up one day and saying, I'm going to have an affair today. That sounds a great plan. No one wakes up and says, today I'm going to wreck my marriage. No one wakes up and says, today I'm going to commit fraud. It, it mostly happens with a drift. Nobody wakes up saying, today I'm going to turn my back on Jesus. It usually happens with a drift. And I, I want to say, whether, maybe you're in that position today and you're saying, Gabe, when I look at my marriage, when I look at my life, when I look, look at my business, when I look at my heart, I'm drifting. I'm just drifting. I'm settling. I'm settling towards passivity. I'm settling towards temptation, whatever it is. Maybe you're sitting here today and you say, no, not for me. Well, let me tell you, if you say not for me, then this is definitely for you. Because actually, drift doesn't come and knock on your door and say, I'm here. Welcome. Sign up for a three-month course of drifting. It just happens. And I want to say, so every single one of us here today are here. And, and every parent will be able to announce this. Where, uh, every parent of tattoos, I'm a young dad. Every parent says, enjoy it. Because I look back and they go, where did the years go? And too often parents are looking back with, with, with disdain on those years because they've just allowed them to happen. And I believe too often of us are allowing years just to happen when God is saying, don't drift, resist the drift. And I want to put that in our hearts today from this text. These lines that have recurred in my spirit again and again over the years, resist the drift. Can you say to your neighbor quickly this morning, say, resist the drift. If your neighbor did not say it to you, say, Come on, spoil sports. Come on, come on, guys. This is church. So this morning, this morning I want to give us three points, three helpful things from this scripture on how to resist the drift, and they're taken from this Hebrews passage. Number one will be on the screen behind me. The scripture tells us, first it says, let us draw near to God. It says, let us draw near to God. Now he says this because he knows that our hearts drift. The writer is actually imp- imp- Imploring to these people, a people who have known Jesus, who have encountered Him, who have encountered what it means to walk closely with Him, He's having to remind them, let us draw near to God. It almost sounds, that's too basic. What are, you, what are you trying to do here? No, no, no. He's saying, that like we're in persecution. Give us something deeper. No, He says, this is the crux of it. Let us draw near to God because He knows that our hearts, like a bowling ball in the alley, have got a tendency to go towards the gutter. I don't know about your heart. Every time I go bowling, it seems like I just can't get that thing straight. It just keeps going into the gut. I'm like, what the heck? I try the other way. I'm just telling I've got to draw. It's just, it's a problem. But our hearts are like that. Our hearts have got this tendency, even though we know we can draw near to God, we know we can press into Him, our hearts, and maybe I'm just speaking of my own heart, my heart is fickle and it, it's got the, the human nature to drift. So that's why the writer here is saying to the Hebrews, is saying, let us draw near to God. I know this all too well because in grade seven, I was fully convinced that my heart was in love with this young girl. I won't mention her name just in case she one day listens. <laughs> Secrets. 
I was convinced, and I promise you, my prayer life in grade seven was, I said, God, if you let this girl like me, I'm in. Send me to China. I'll go. Sign me up for martyrdom. I'm in. But if the just God, I remember, honestly, this was, I was praying that this, this girl would like me. And uh, nothing came of it. And I remember going, God, where are you? My heart is fully for this woman. Please. As, as one can be in grade seven, you know. And uh, just to speed the story on, it's a great story if we ever have time. But 10 years later, um, when I was a little bit older, I remember arriving, this girl who was incredibly stunning as a 13-year-old. As a I remember arriving back in Zawari, hadn't seen her for 10 years, and my prayer had never been answered. I remember walking in, and I saw her at a meeting, and I saw her. And I said, thank God for unanswered prayer. Thank God that you don't answer every prayer we pray, God. Because He knows. He knows. Now, I'm not saying what had happened. I'm just saying. Maybe that's not a great way to start a sermon. But let me anyway help you here. I just know that my heart drifts. That actually if you go and you read all the diaries of your teenage years and the things that captivated you so, no longer do five years later going, how immature, how silly. And we know our hearts are like that. Our hearts, My heart gets... Feisty at the World Cup for, for some reason. And then a few weeks later, I'm like, why the heck do I even almost blow a blood vessel there over Iceland's loss to Nigeria? Who cares? And as trivial that might sound, I believe that our hearts are like that on a weekly basis with many things. Given over to this thing, given over to this thing. And if I don't get this, God, please make this thing come through for me. God, please. And our hearts are drifting, drifting. And he's like, the writer gets in there and says, let us draw near to God. He puts us in there, the stake in there, and actually it's, it's not words that are unusual to us. It's words that Jesus walks into a situation with the disciples on the beach, and he says these words. They weren't words to be interpreted. They weren't words to be dissected. They were words to be acted on. He says, come, follow me. He says, put this in action straight away. These are not words to go, let's theorize what that might look like. No, no, these are words to actually act on. Because our drift happens when we just don't... When we, don't, when we leave it to itself. You see, this is the understanding we've been beating this drum that Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. He's not looking for people to go, go Jesus. I love what he's doing over there. It's awesome. And watch some inspiring YouTube clips every now and again just to get fired up. No, no. We've got God himself. We've got God himself. We're not given a pseudo faith that we have to try and, uh, and make things happen. He says, I am here. Draw near to me. This is the privilege of being Christ followers. We get God. We get God. And here's the question that I'd love to ask, and I've been asking myself, is if the writer feels it's important to say this, because he knows that we're not doing it, the question I want to ask is then, what are you drawing near to? What am I drawing near to? To anxiety? Am I drawing near to worry? Am I drawing near to fear? If I'm honest, I do that a lot. If I'm very honest, I pray if all of us were honest, we said, what if, if this is, this is, the writer says it's important enough to say, draw near to God. Oh, duh, that makes sense. But it means that we are actually drawing near to something else. I'll actually say the status quo of our heart actually is to draw near to illicit lovers. Again and again and again. I, I tell you, this is, we draw near to many illicit lovers again and again and again. And, and you know, this, this is a silly example. I was just thinking about, uh, we've had this conversation at our home, where we get in bed at night, and uh, my wife's next to me, just relax, this is PG. Um, and, uh, and we're there, and, and Fiona is a, a beautiful and just incredible, and she's a world-class cuddler. Just want to put it out there, world-class, and this is where that's amazing. 
But and yet, so silly. So often, I get into bed, and my first reaction, I'm there. I'm like, oh, fee, oh, just so good to be in bed with you here. And then I hear, bing, my phone next to me, and I'm like this. It's just like a reaction. Without even thinking, I draw near to this thing. And it's not because my heart is wicked and pulled away. Fiona, I despise you in this moment. No, it's my natural disposition is to pull away from the things I should be drawing near to. Silly example, but I'm telling you so often God is there with us walking and anxiety comes and the moment comes, we go, ping, anxiety. Where is that money going to come from? Your heart is not in neutral. It's drawing near to something. If the writer has to say, draw near to God, it means you have to pull it away from something else. What are you drawing near to? Here's the indicator if you want to know what you're drawing near to. Is what do you do when you mess up? When you fall short? When you blow it? What do you do? Because too often I, I was chatting to someone the other day and they said to me, I said, hey, I haven't seen you at church for ages, man. Are you okay? Are you all right? He says to me, no, nah, I've messed up big time, eh? The last few weeks. And he just started telling me all the things that has just gone wrong and where he had reacted badly and had given into temptation. He says, I'm just getting things right. And then I'll be back. I'm like, let's run that logic with every other thing in the world. I'm really, really sick. But I'm just going to get healthy. Then I'll go see the doctor. You know, I'm really in massive legal trouble. But let me try and get as much of it under control. Then I'll go call the lawyer. It doesn't work. But for some reason, the enemy loves. The enemy will get into this thing and say, actually, you've messed up. What are you going to draw near to? My own abilities? My own man, my sin management, my own uh, my own personality management. Because I don't want people to know the full brokenness that's inside of me. Or am I going to draw near to God in this community? If you want to know what you are drawing near to, is what do you do when you fall short? I've, I tell the story often, but I love it because it's it's so helpful for me. And I was in Namibia years ago, and I saw a, a parent. And this, for time's sake, I'll just breeze over the details. Where the parents, were, the kids, his two kids were fighting. And, and he ended up saying, actually, the kids were embarrassing because it, it was a moment we were in public and there's two kids were fighting and he calls the boy, hey, boy, come here. And I was like, oh, this is going down. I don't know if you've ever watched that. You know when you see, like, you get embarrassed for parents because I'm thinking he's going to give the boy a whack and going to send the boy out of the room and it's going to be tears and, and just going to be awkward. No, awkward. Just keep drinking your coffee. Just keep drinking your coffee. And he called this boy in and he said, boy, come here. Boy, stomped all the way. Boy, onto dad's lap. The boy jumped on dad's lap, not happy to be there. And Everyone else carried on chatting, and the dad just started to just speak to the boy, just quietly saying, boy, what's going on here? What's going on here? Oh, dad, you're my sister. No, no, no. What's going on? You're not, you're not reacting properly. And it was just quiet. I was just interested. So I was listening. Everyone else carried on with their conversations. I was that weird guy. Yeah? And um, could you give us a moment? I'm, like, I'm needing a preaching story. No, I'm joking. And, and this moment happened as, as each other, the boy's breathing calmed down and withdrew. And, and, and this moment at the end of this whole conversation, the dad said to him, boy, are you, are you, are you feeling more calm now? He says, yes, dad. He says, are, are you ready to go apologize to your sister? He said, yes, dad. He said, okay, you go do that, my boy. The boy jumped off and went and uh, apologized. They carried on with whatever they were doing. And in that moment, sure, maybe it is, it's not, I'm not giving you parenting styles or I'm not qualified to do that yet. But what I, what I did see in that moment, I think many of us live in this realm, we think that the way God disciplines, and yes, God does discipline. The Bible tells us He disciplines those He loves. But the way He disciplines is never with a timeout. He doesn't say, go to your room and sort yourself out till then you come back and talk to me. He disciplines by saying, come nearer, draw near to me. This is how the Father disciplines. This is the Father. When our hearts go astray, the Father's plea is again, draw near to me. 
He doesn't say that to those who are on the front foot. He doesn't say those to those who've been pressing in all week. Yeah, draw near. No, this is the call of the gospel. Draw near to me. What do you do when you sin? What do you do when you fall short? I'm being honest. I often don't draw near to him. But the writer of Hebrews is putting some strength in my heart. Because this for us is true. Because actually I wanted to say this lastly in this point. Is it's not good enough to just be aware of God's presence. Many of us know, many of us will probably agree, yeah, God's everywhere. God's always there. He's always with me. The Bible says, be aware of his presence, his omnipresence, that he's always with you and never leave you nor forsake you. But he says this, don't just be aware, draw near. That's the difference. What's the difference from the people who are going to stand, who are going to allow their hearts not to drift, not just those who nod and go, yep, God's with me, but those who draw near ongoingly. This is helpful for me. Let us draw near. Second point from this writer says, let us hold firm without drifting or without swerving. Let us hold firm. And now he's saying this because he knows not only do our hearts drift, but our hopes drift. The things that we put our hope and our courage in. He says, let us hold firm without drifting to the hope we profess because he is faithful. Let us hold firmly to the hope. My question here for us in this moment is, what are you holding on to? What are you holding firm to? Are you holding firm to offense? Am I holding firm to unforgiveness? Am I holding firm to man's opinion of you? You know, I think this is an understanding. The drift of the human heart is to offense all the time. Just to let you know that every human heart, no matter your disposition, no matter if you feel I'm a, no, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm not, I'm not easily up for this. I don't care what type of you are. The enemy is the same. I've just seen the scriptures are too clear that man's heart drifts to offense. Every time. Just have to look why they're broken relationships everywhere. Because man drifts to offense. Man drifts to unforgiveness. That's the drift of our heart. We drift to what is due us. That's unfair. So somebody, one preacher actually called it the bait of Satan. He's called that offense is the bait of Satan. It's the thing that Satan, it's the hook just there and says, pick it up, and he knows way too many, he will pick that thing up, whoop, and it pulls you in, thinks just a little bit of offense, just a little bit of anger towards that person, that bait will rip you in. Here's, here's the illustration, I, I really wanted to get a rope, but I, as, I, as you can see, these are lover's hands, not rope hands, so I don't have ropes at my home, but I imagine if there was a mass, a long rope here, this is the understanding, that if there was a rope from here to the back, and uh, I'm on this side, too often people see that offense, they see that, that unforgiveness, they see that thing that just is, it's legi- it seems legitimate. It seems like this, I, I, should, I should be angry about this. They have slighted me. They did not phone me back. They have abused me. They have abused the privilege of us. They, how can they do that? And it all seems legitimate. That rope, that bait is there and we pick it up. And we think, I'm just, you know, just going to hold on to this for a while just because it feels good to be a little bit angry. The problem is on the other side of our offense. We don't know who's on the other side. So often this is the sort of thing, I pick it up thinking, I, I, I've got this, I've got this under control. You know, don't worry, I'm not going to be, I'm not going all over the board. I'm not going like angry and sending hate mail and I'm not going to put a Facebook status card for bed. I'll keep it, or even if I do, it won't name names. So just, you know, I'm just going to hold it here. I've got it under control. The problem with this thing is, on the other end, you don't know who Satan is pulling up on the other end. He's bringing Warren Smith whoop, on the other end. He's putting all. He's putting Andrew McPherson. He's putting all the, the the big the big guns on the other side to pull that you are unaware of. 
You think it's just a fence this side, but the enemy's like, I've got him. And I promise you within, within moments, that side, as a tug of war starts to happen, you'll be pulled out of your standing within seconds. Because you don't know what's on the other side of that. You don't know what's on the other side of the temptation you're facing. You don't know the other side of that offense you're going to just pick up. It's just a little thing here. The, the scriptures are saying it. Let us hold firm without drifting. Not because this is just for one in a hundred people. This is the heart of man. We drift from our hope we hold on to. You see, we get a choice. Is this rope here and is this rope here? And we get to choose to hold on to hope. I love how the script says, hold on to hope. The, the, the author in 1 Peter says it's a living hope. His name is Jesus. The writer in Hebrews earlier says, this hope, we have this hope which is an anchor to our soul. As I've been meditating on this, I know my hope. I, I won't tell you hope. There's a movie years ago called Hope Floats. Anyone see that? Terrible movie. But, anyway. but hope doesn't float. We think hope is like based on circumstance. When the waves are like this, when it's good, it's up here. And it was down, it floats with this. And we live on this hope I'm hoping for, but oh, I'm a little bit disappointed this week because things didn't come and they didn't phone me back. But this week I'm up because really had a great meet, a small group meeting and life is good. Hope doesn't float. The Bible tells us that our hope, we have a hope that's an anchor for our souls. That's not determined on the waves and the situations you feel. You've got an anchor that holds you no matter what. I love that picture. I love that analogy for me. And here is the, what hope actually means. Hope is an unreasonable belief of something good. An unreasonable belief of something good. But here's the thing. To hold firmly onto hope, to hold firmly onto hope, you have to let go of something else. If you're going to be pulled into a story of hope and live with unreasonable belief, because on the other end of this rope, when I pick up hope, His faithfulness, His promises always stand. No matter how puny my little hope holding is here. I go, I don't know what else to do. Bank is falling apart. People are feeling offended. I don't know what to do. But I'm just going to hold on to hope. I'll tell you, His hope, His promises, His faithfulness will pull you into a bigger story every time. This is the choice though. We've got to let go of something. To hold firmly onto hope without drifting. You cannot have one hand on offense and one hand on hope. You cannot have one hand on this because you'll be going with this one in seconds because our hearts drift from hope. Maybe you're sitting here saying, say, my hands are too full of hope to pick up a fence. I love it. My hands are too full of hope to pick up a fence. God has called us to be a people of hope, unreasonable belief that we carry this and despite what is going on. We are t- uh, my hands are too full of hope to be offended by you right now. You might have slighted me, but I'm actually I'm not going to pick it up because my hands are too full of hope. Because he is faithful. The scripture ends, because he who promised is faithful. Not he who holds the offense. That's not going to get you anywhere. You see, hope doesn't look like much this side, but it is a guarantee of his faithfulness on the other side. Because Jesus said, come follow me. And he followed that up by saying, and I will make you. That's the hope that he's put in my heart. That no matter what you're going through, my confidence today, right now, is that no matter what you are facing right now, his promise is, come follow me, and I will make you still remains. He's not saying, come follow me, but good luck if the situation goes bad. Because then we're going uh, to have to make a plan. No, no, he says, I will make you. So you in chaos, your relationships are falling apart, you're feeling abandoned, you're feeling very isolated, you're feeling that I don't know where that next business deal is coming from. I tell you right now, he says, I will make you. Hold on to hope. Finally this morning, it says this, let us spur one another on. Now the writer is saying this because he knows that once our hearts and our hopes start drifting, our habits will follow very quickly. He knows that our habits will follow in seconds. 
Our habits are linked to our hearts and our hopes. And very quickly, if we, if we allow this thing just, our, the hearts just to drift, to allow hopes to drift very quickly, conversation will become me, me, me. Self-preservation kicks in very quickly. And let's be honest. Let's just take it if you are a person who's going, oh, I'm not too sure about the scripture, Gabe. Let's go to every Hollywood movie. How many of us will sit in the cinema and in a horror movie or in a, in a thriller moment where they go, let's split up. You know there are deaths coming. It's like, ching, 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 ching. Deaths are coming. It never ends well. And yet they do it every time. Like, just watch a movie, guys. Don't... And yet that's our hearts. The problem that happens, whenever we feel our hearts drifting, our hopes drifting, we do it again and again. We say this, you know, I just need some me time. I, I just need to isolate myself a little bit. I just need time to find myself. You can look for yourself, sir, man, for all eternity. But yourself is going to give you no hope. Yourself is not going to help you with drifting. You are, the, John Calvin says, I look deeper and deeper in myself, I get more and more sick. Because nothing good resides in the heart of a man except for Christ himself. Corinthian Boom said that she looks without, I look without and I find hope. It's not within me. It's not deeper in your time. I just need some time away from those people. No, no, actually you need time pressing into God's people. He says, let us spur one another on. I want to ask you the questions. What voices are you allowing to dictate your future? The voices of social media. I'm not beating up on social media. I just know my own heart just defaults to the flick. The drift for me is often when my heart, uh, let me just go and flick a little bit. And it's just this escapism. Uh, maybe it's just me. Sorry, I'm just the only guy on social media. What voices are you allowing to dictate your future? Your bank balance, failed relationships, your past, your shame. What voices are you allowing to dictate your future? Because here as I read this, I see a gospel community being called to Christ. What, what I love about these scriptures here, and, and just before I get there, there's an urgency to it. He says, let us not give up encouraging each other. Let's not give up meeting together, someone have to of doing. Not because he's trying to grow a big church in Rome. Paul is not trying to do it. Keep meeting. We need numbers. He says this. Keep meeting together. Keep encouraging each other. Even more as the day of Christ's return comes. In light of the fact that the days are short and that Jesus is coming back and there's a big mission ahead for us. There's actually, this is not now kumbaya. Even the Jews who are under persecution in Rome, he is saying spur each other on because Jesus is coming back and they need to hear about Christ. They need to see about Christ. This is not kumbaya. Sit down, pat each other on the head till Jesus comes back. Let's hide you. The Romans, maybe they can't even find us. No, no, no. He's like saying, actually, let us spur one another because actually you're going back out. You're going back out to the city of people who are going to persecute you. You're going back out where you're going to be needing to hold on to hope. You're going back out where you're going to have to hold your heart and draw near to God, not in moments of big worship, but drawing near to Him when anxiety is pressing in. Will you be drawing near to Him? When offense and anger, when they're beating you and they go, pick up the offense, pick up the offense, I'm holding firmly onto hope. I will not be swayed. Let us encourage each other. Let us gather together as some have, some have forgotten to do even more as Jesus comes back soon. As I, as I bring this into land, I love the fact that all these statements bizarrely say, let us. Bizarrely. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold firm to hope. Let us. This is not just to one person. I got this for myself. Thank you. That's great. Leave me alone. I'm holding on to hope. He's saying this to a people because this is a gospel call to do this in community. And he knows our tendency to drift. So he tells us to draw near. 
He, he knows our tendency to drift and not home, hold firm. So he says, let us hold firm. He knows our tendency to, to, to fall away from one another, to stop encouraging each other, to come isolated, to me, me, me. So he says, let us encourage each other even more as the day approaches. I pray this morning the let us's will start to rise up in your heart. I really was, my cheesy nature was going to give you all a piece of lettuce. So you got lettuce, lettuce to remind you. But just, I mean, it's the end of the month. My budget wouldn't stretch that far. But anyway, but get it. Let us. This is scripture, not just to you personally. This is not just for you. Yes, this is for the person on your left and your right for your good. Let us draw near to God. I need you so I can draw near to him. I need you to encourage me, to remind me when my heart is drifting. No, Gabe, let us draw near. When my hope is going, when you actually, I'm going, I don't know what to do. Anxiety is pressing in. Let us hold firm, Gabe. When I'm wanting to fall away and press back into the mind, me and self-absorption, I need people, no, let us encourage each other daily. Let us continue gathering. But today I want to encourage us because what I love about those let us's, they're preceded by two we haves. So there are implications of what we need to do. But actually, if you read before I got to those texts, verse 19 and 20, 21, tells us we've got two we haves, things that are in our possession already. Not that you have uh, individually, but we have together. Let me tell you what they are. It says, we have, the figure of the scripture says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us to the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, then we can draw near. Then we can hold firm. Then we can encourage each other, one another. This is not based on the confidence of numbers. This is not based on the confidence in the person next to you. It's not based on how good you, I need a strong person next to me. Those things are helpful. But this is based on the fact that we have a, a sacrifice who's gone and been paid for us. We have not only a sacrifice, but we also got a high priest who went and administered that sacrifice. Let me help us very quickly as I land. Is that in the, in the Jewish culture, what happened, and, and the Jews would understand, the Jewish Hebrew, the Hebrew Jews here in this moment in Rome would understand this language, would resound in them. Because for centuries and centuries, the Jewish people once a year, once a year it was a standard moment on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, why? Because every year they knew their hearts would have drifted. They knew their hopes would have drifted. They knew their community would have drifted. There would have been a fence everywhere. So once a year, if the people would send the great high priest who would go in, and they had the Holy of Holies, they had the, the tabernacle set up. And you have the, the, the holy place, and you had the most holy place. Then they had the Holy of Holies. And some people could go in this level, some could go this far. But the place where God was living, where God resided, His presence was, the only person who could draw near was the high priest. And this is the amazing thing. The high priest would go, and the man, you have to do ritual upon ritual before he could go, and once a year only. And once a year, what he would do is this guy, after doing all these rituals, trying to get everything clean, get everything perfect, let go of all the offenses, let go of all the things, and encourage people, I don't have an issue with you. He had to sort out relational issues everywhere, because he could not go in with any uncleanliness. And he'll start to go in, and the people would watch nervously, because he, he had a belt attached to his leg, with a rope that was attached to that as well. So it would ring as he walks because actually there's a track record that guys, if they had not perfectly been set, cleaned in their rituals, high priests would walk into that most holy place and they'll drop down dead. Boom. And no one else wants to go and face that guy. So if the bell stopped ringing, pull him out. True story. True story. This is the understanding that actually no one was ever going in with confidence. No high priest was going in, I got this, boys. 
Actually, you don't need the belt. The bell. I'll be out in. I'll be out in a minute. No one was going in with confidence. Even the high priest, who was the best of the best, the guy was going in, going, "Love you, love. See you, love to the kids. Put money aside just in case." No one went in with confidence. And yet then we are told in the scripture that we have confidence because there was a sacrifice. The sacrifice he had to give was it had to be a perfect sacrifice as well. Not only had the priest had to be perfect, but the sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be a, a perfect unblemished lamb that had been kept aside. That lamb that was spotless, that had been reared for that end, had to, that was being raised for one end, one purpose, to die as a sacrifice for the people. The sacrifice had to be perfect. The guy who had to go administer the sacrifice had to be perfect. Confidence was not a high, all-time high there. We're told we have a sacrifice who was perfect, named Jesus. We're told that we have a high priest named Jesus who was perfect. And this is the amazing thing, that he is, we're told that we can come in with confidence because we have a high priest who went in not just one time a year. He went in once and for all. And the Bible tells us that when he had finished his act, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Let me tell you, priests on earth never sat down. Never. As their job, when they were in the realm of being a priest, they never sat down because it indicated our job is not done yet. Once a priest sat down, it would mean that his job was done, but he knew that next year he had to go back in because the people's hearts would drift, their hopes would drift, their habits would drift, so actually I have to keep myself pure again because I've got another thing to do next year for them. But this author says, we've got a sacrifice. We've got a high priest who went and who was perfect and who sat down and now says, you have confidence. You have access. And as the old childhood game of open gates, one man ran through and the whole of heaven declared, open gates! And heaven was ripped open so that sons and daughters could run in because of the one high priest who'd been made perfect, made perfect those who'd been made perfect forever.